The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Why don't we pray together? Father, we thank you for your great love for us. God, we thank you for hope that we have in Jesus. We thank you for children and for the families that they represent. And we do say hallelujah, what a savior. You have no rival, you have no equal, and your name is powerful. And it's powerful because you rose from the dead. So God, as we look together in your word today at a scene from the end of the life of your son on earth, God, would you impact us? Would you teach us lessons from the garden And would you shape our lives for your glory? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you're new here, my name's Chase. I'm one of the pastors here. We're in week three of a four-week Easter series called The Final Act, scenes from Mark's gospel. They're really toward the end of Jesus' life. Today, we're in Mark 14, 32 through 50 moving toward the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And today we're in the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives as we look at scene three. Gethsemane means the oil press because it was a place where there was an olive orchard and then there would have been a press. And I don't know about you, but I love olives. And not everybody does, but I really do. I love black olives. I love green olives. I don't care if they're pitted. My favorite are Katamala olives, these red ones. And I come by it honest. My, my great-grandfather was an olive farmer. His name was Antun Rustum, or Rustum, as he would have been known in his home country of Syria. And there was a famine in 1913. And he came over on a boat to America And he died before I was born, but I got this great love of olives from my great-grandmother and my grandmother. When we would go into my grandmother's house, my great-grandmother was living with her and my grandfather after my great-grandfather's death, and she would always cook Middle Eastern food, baklava for dessert, tabbouleh, fatouche, kibbe, and there were always olives out. My kids love olives as well. I can remember Maddie when she was two years old, Jason's Deli, Central Mall, Port Arthur, Texas, and she'd put five black olives on each finger, five on this finger, boom, 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 boom. She'd just suck them in. I asked her this week if she would recreate that in an iPhone video so I could show you guys, and she said no. (laughs) I I thought it would have been great. She didn't like my dad jokes either, though, but I, I told her they ought to be put on a whiteboard because they're remarkable. I think they're... You see, uh, uh, yeah. She loves them. And, and then our younger kids love olives. My wife gets me these little packs, 100-calorie packs of olives, and one of my sons absolutely is just chasing me at my knees, asking for olives. So I love to get these olives and hide from him so that I can eat them. Not, not really. I just, there's one type he doesn't like, so I get Laura to get those so I can enjoy them every once in a while. Grew up loving them. See, this name, Rustum, it, it, it's an Alawite name. It's an odd little Muslim sect, and my great-grandfather changed it to Rustum, and somewhere along the way, believers loved him and shared Christ with him, and I'm so grateful they did. And so we'd hear stories about how they were made, and, and if you've been to Israel, you've seen this. You may have seen it on TV or on the web, 
This is how olives get pressed into olive oil. A lot of folks think this is the press, but that's really just the, the crushing stone. And what will happen is olives, pits, and all will be put in this little circle, and a donkey comes along and pushes in a circle over and over this log, and it makes the crushing wheel roll around and around and around, and it makes a mash almost like a tapenade, and then they take that mash of olive and pit and everything, and then they put it into baskets. It looks like an accordion over here, but this is about 10 or 12 olive baskets, and they put the mash in the side, and then they press it down with this log, and then one stone is put on for weight, and then another, it's pressed three times. The first time, they get the best oil for cooking, the second, kind of the second quality oil for lighting lamps, and the third, the lowest quality for soap and for making grease. And, and so as we come into the Garden of Gethsemane, the oil press with Jesus in the same way, he's going to get pressed three times as he goes before the Father. And I think there's a message for his disciples that night or some messages to learn. And I think there are messages for us today to learn. So let's look together in Mark 14, 32 through 42. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Peter, James, and John, the inner circle of Jesus, three times in the Gospels, they get an opportunity to go a little further with Jesus. The first time is the Mount of Transfiguration where they see him in all of his glory. They get to know a little bit more what it looks like that he's Messiah. Then when he's going to raise Jairus' daughter, they take, he takes them along and they get a glimpse of the direction power of Jesus Christ. And now here when his soul is agonizing, they get a picture of his suffering. It's almost like a parallel to Paul's words in Philippians 3. They get the answer to this prayer that I may know him. They beheld his glory. And the power of his resurrection, they saw him raise this little girl from the dead. And the fellowship of his suffering, his soul is sorrowful, even unto death. And so he says, remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed. If it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time. It says in another gospel, when he prayed that third time, his soul was so distressed that he sweat drops of blood, and angels were sent to minister to him. And then he came to them and said, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It's enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. See, Jesus had been telling his disciples along the way what would happen right after Peter said, you are the Christ. In Matthew 13, Jesus said, the Christ will be betrayed into the hands of sinful men and he will suffer and die and on the third day he'll raise from the dead. 
He told them the hour was coming. Just a couple of days before, he told them, watch and pray, stay alert. The kingdom of God's like a man who goes on a long trip and the servants don't know when the hour comes, when he returns. They don't know if it's at midnight, if it's in the evening, or even when the rooster crows. And then he'll tell Peter, by the way, you're going to deny me before the rooster crows. And in a way, he's pointing them to eschatological events, not future eschatology, but present eschatology that the kingdom of God is being ushered in. And indeed, that's what's going to happen, just not how they think. So Jesus takes them to this familiar place, and he's got this great anguish, and he says, my soul is sorrowful even unto death. Remain here and watch. And so then he goes to the Father with more anguish than he's ever known from all of eternity past. And he prays using language he's used before, praying as he's taught his disciples to pray, Father, all things are possible with you. Remove this cup from me, not as I will, but as you will. Three things about his prayer. The first is this. It's an intimate prayer. It's an intimate prayer. He says, Abba, Father, you've heard us say it before. Uh, Some of you have experienced it. If you go to Israel or if you go to the Middle East and Arab nations, it's Abu. And in Hebrew, it's Abba. And you go into a market and if there's a little girl or a little boy that can't find their dad or there's maybe even just a toy they want to show them, you hear this phrase, Abba, Abba. They're just calling out. And Jesus is calling to the Father who through our adoption in Christ, we now get to call Abba, Father. It's intimate. He's saying, I know you. I know nothing's impossible for you. It's an intimate prayer. He's praying like he, dis- he told the disciples to pray, evoking language they would know. It's not just an intimate prayer. It's an intense prayer. Let this cup pass from me. Let this cup pass from me. This is language his people would know. In fact, he had just used the term with James and John. Jesus had this amazing group of friends just a bit before. He's told them what's happening. He says, I'm going to suffer at the hands of sinful men. I'm going to die, and on the third day I'll rise from the dead. And James and John, being the amazing friends they are, go, when you come into your kingdom, can we sit on your right and on your left? Man, I bet they were fun at parties. And Jesus looks at them and says, can you drink the cup you're asking to drink? See, he's evoking language that the Hebrew children would know. In the Old Testament, they hear of this cup to drink, and it's most often a cup of wrath. Jeremiah 25 says it this way. The Lord says to Jeremiah, the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hands this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. So I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom the Lord sent me drink it. See, Jesus is drinking the cup of the wrath of God intended for the nations. The enemies of God and his people. Have, have, you ever, have you ever had something to drink that was just disgusting? 
You thought it might be good, but it wasn't going to be. Maybe some of you had something like that last night. I don't know. We've all tasted something that wasn't what we thought it was going to be, and it wasn't very good. That's happened to me a lot because I'm in the missions world, and so I taste some interesting things. But nothing compares to what I tasted when I was three years old. My dad chewed tobacco. (laughs) Levi Garrett was his brand. There was a pouch in his back pocket and a pouch in his cheek almost all the time until he quit. And he'd let me taste it, and I just didn't like it. Well, one day we were at my grandparents' house, and I was, I was three years old, and my dad's sitting there on the couch, and I look over by him, and there's a can of Coke. And man, it looked good. I mean, I was three, and I, like, it, what three-year-old doesn't like that sugar rush, right? I know mine do, and I wanted that Coke. And, I mean, my dad, he wasn't like me hiding olives from the kids. If he, if he had something to drink, he'd share it. So I said, Dad, can I have a drink of your Coke? And he said, no, son, you can't have a drink. And I did not understand why. <laughs> and so I just kept asking, you know, and he kept telling me no. Well, then he and my granddad got up, and they walked into the backyard, and that Coke was still sitting right where my dad left it. This will probably shock you if you know me, but I was a touch mischievous as a child. So I made sure that they were out of sight, and I walked over, and like any good, honest, Jesus-loving three-year-old would do, I took that Coke, and I just began to drink. (sighs) I was three or four chugs in before it clicked. I'm not sure that's (laughs) Coca-Cola. And last hour, my wife kind of said, you need to stop. People are getting nauseous, which for me means just a little more. No, I'll stop there. I'll just tell you, in a variety of ways, that was a bad day for me. (laughs) I I didn't know you could get in trouble for getting sick, but you can, apparently. I'm going to forgive my dad for that one day. <laughs> See, as, as awful as that was for a three-year-old little boy in southeast Texas, it, it can't compare to the putrid, vile, disgusting nature of the cup that Jesus would drink. It's a cup full of evil, all the evil of the powers and principalities and the rulers of the world that would seek to defeat the kingdom of God through death when in reality drinking that cup would bring about victory over evil. It's a cup brimming full of jealousy, hatred, covetousness, racism, adultery, idolatry, which he must drink. It's a cup full of wrath. He's the sin bearer. He became the object of the Father's holy wrath against sin. That is not a popular idea these days, but because God is holy, he does not like sin, but he loves you and me. So he set forth his son 
as a covering for our sin, that he might still be just and then the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So if you don't know Jesus as Savior and King, here is the message of Easter and it's better than a golden egg. Jesus Christ gave his perfect, sinless, spotless, holy life for you and for me to give us life in him that will never fade away and never perish and to defeat the powers of evil and set all things right. And he rose from the dead and a lot of people saw him. It's a cup of evil, it's a cup of wrath, it's a cup of curse. Galatians three thirteen. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. See, it's a prayer that's intimate, Father. All things are possible for you. It's a prayer that's intense. If there is a way, take this cup from me. It's a prayer that's intentional, not as I will, but as you will. Not as I will, but as you will. See, it's, it's one thing to see him teach his disciples to pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven But now Jesus is praying this with an intention because he knows the kingdom of God doesn't come like the kingdoms of the world. He doesn't rule like the Gentiles rule. We looked a couple of weeks ago in Mark 10 where it says, even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So he's implicitly saying, your kingdom come here and your will be done And the kingdom indeed is coming and the Father's will is done. The disciples just didn't understand how it was going to be done. But Isaiah did 700 years before the birth of Christ. Your will be done. Jesus prayed. Isaiah 53.10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief, and when his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. See, Isaiah 53, we can see right there, it's about the cross, but it's also, I think, about the garden. Out of the anguish of his soul, my soul is sorrowful even unto death. He shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted He shall bear their iniquities, therefore I will divide with him a portion with the many. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with transgressors, two thieves on either side of him on the cross, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for transgressors. See, the kingdom comes and the Father's will is done. How many of you have have ever said, I just wish I, I knew what God's will was for me? I've said that. We say that all the time. If I just knew God's will, I wish I knew so I could follow it. I wish I knew what God wanted me to do. And here's what we can know if we would follow God's will. While we cannot take the wrath of God 
for the sins of others upon ourselves. We just can't do it. Only Jesus could do it. He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It had to be someone from the tribe of Judah, had to be from the house of David, had to be the root of Jesse. We can't take the sins of the world upon ourselves. Only Jesus could do that. But we definitely can lay our lives down for others. And if we're followers of Jesus, we can know with confidence that's God's will for us. That's what Jesus did. He would soon, after his resurrection, tell his disciples, even as the Father sent me, so now I send you. And how the Father sent him was really, really important to him. How do we know this? Because he talked about it all the time. No less than 13 times in the Gospel of John, Jesus tells his disciples, he tells crowds, he tells the Pharisees, the Father sent me, the Father sent me, the Father sent me. And then he's connecting the dots. If you would follow me or come after me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And then he raises from the dead and he says to his disciples, even as the Father sent me. So I send you, so I send you, take up the cup and lay down your lives. We might say, you know, I follow Jesus, I follow Jesus, but the reality is you're not laying down your life for anyone and you don't have any intention to. If that's you, my question would be, do you really follow Jesus? Do you really follow Jesus? Now, don't get offended. I'm not saying you're not going to heaven, okay? I'm just asking, do you really follow Jesus? But when you heard that, when you heard that, if the first thing you thought was, wait a second, did that guy just say I'm not going to heaven? More than you stop to wonder, well, wait, am am I following Jesus? Then I would say examine yourself because you might not be doing either. See, the call for the follower of Christ is to lay our lives down. This is how we know what love is, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And so we ought to lay down our lives for others. If we would follow Jesus, we must must take up the cup and lay our lives down. That's how we love. We are great at loving in a variety of ways. We'll sometimes say to people, you know, I love them. That's why I'm yelling at them. (laughs) I love them. That's why I wish they agreed with me. I love them. That's why I'm so angry at them. And we like to define love on our terms. And and Jesus being God is the one who defines it. And he says to love is to lay down your life for your friends. If we would follow Jesus, the first message of the garden is take up the cup and lay down your life. Take up the cup and lay down your life. We lay down our lives for the sake of others. Tim Keller says it this way, Jesus did not come with a sword in his hands. He came with nails in his hands. He did not come to bring judgment. He came to bear judgment. He took up the cup and laid his life down for the sake of others. And so that's what he would call us to do. For the second lesson of the garden, we kind of got to look again at Mark And then we've got to go to Luke and John. So he says, after he prays, take this cup from me, not as I will, but as you will. He says, rise, let us go. See, my betrayer is at hand. And so Judas comes with a party from the Pharisees and 
chief priests and elders, and they come with clubs and swords, and Judas says to the one I kiss, that is one, and he says rabbi or teacher, and he kisses him affectionately. It's the same word, not always used in the New Testament. It's used a couple of other times, though, when Mary is anointing Jesus' feet for burial, or she's anointing him for burial, and she kisses his feet, same word there, and then when the prodigal son is coming home and the father runs out to embrace and kiss him, it's the word Used there, Jesus is betrayed by a dear friend with a kiss. Let us be going. And then we read in Mark that one of the disciples cuts off the ear of a servant who's there. Well, if we look in in John 18, we find out that disciple is Peter, which I know is shocking that he would cut somebody's ear off. And we find out that the servant of the high priest is named Malchus, and Jesus takes his ear and he puts it back on, and they all left him and fled, just like he said they would do. Strike the sheep, he told them at the Last Supper. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will flee. He's quoting Zechariah 13 8. And they all fled, and they're running into the darkness of the night down the hills and into the ravines of the Mount of Olives sweating, breathing in that desert air, their lungs getting hot. And they think the kingdom of God has gone away. And in reality, the kingdom is coming. Evil has entered into Judas. And Peter doesn't understand that if we follow Jesus, we must lay down the sword. We must lay down the sword. Here goes Peter. He's told Jesus, I will die with you. And Jesus has said, really, before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. Peter thinks, no way. No way. And what he's really saying is he's not going to die with Jesus because Jesus has told him how his disciples will die. If you come after me, you deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. What Peter's really saying is I will fight for you. It's like Matt Chandler says, when God says, would you just take one step to the left? And we look over at the left and we go, no, but I'll run a thousand miles this direction for you, God. No, I don't, I don't need you to run a thousand miles for me. I just need you to take one step to the left. No, I'm not taking that step, but I'll run a thousand miles straight ahead for you. And see, Jesus, Jesus could have stopped it all with one word. It's not like he needs anybody to fight for him. And so Peter lops off Malchus's ear. Now, I'm not a doctor, okay, which is not real hard to tell if you hear me talk, right? But when I read that, honestly, every time I've read it until I've read it this week, I've really just kind of thought, well, I mean, it's just an ear. It's cool that Jesus puts it back on, but I mean, it's just an ear, right? Ears obviously aren't a big deal. Gary's got two of them, neither works, and he gets along just fine. The only guy in the world you know who has one eye that works better than both of his ears. Just an ear. That's really probably not the best way to read that because it's not like Peter is a Nago Montoya or Zorro and he thinks, I'm going to teach this kid a lesson. I'll just lop his ear off. See, here's, here's what we read is that Peter wasn't real good with a sword and he missed his head and neck. So in modern days, we like to call that attempted murder. And in, in John, he, he says, that's not what we're here for, Peter. 
That's not why we're here. And he, he puts it back on. It's this interesting thing that'll play out because Peter's going to deny being with Jesus, so he can't be identified as actually the only guilty party that's with Jesus. And he's not just cut off anybody's ear. He's cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest. That's treason punishable by, guess what? Crucifixion. And so Jesus is not just going to die for the sins of the world. He's dying for the sin of his friend. Because he understands that the rulers of the world, the principalities and the powers and the heavenlies, the evil in the world will not be defeated with the weapons of the world. See, Peter thought the kingdom of God could be won with the shedding of blood. And and Jesus did too. Jesus did too. He just thought it would be his own blood and not the blood of another. That's not the way of Jesus to pick up the sword. It's not the weapon he fights with. It's not the weapon he fights with. So the first message from the garden is take up the cup. And the second message from the garden is to lay down the sword. And they're really very similar because helping others really find freedom from their sins and victory over the powers of evil come in the paradox of the gospel that a man would lay his life down for the sake of his neighbors and his enemies alike at what might be the most stressful time he's ever experienced on earth. Jesus, in effect, looks at Peter and says, take up the battle, Peter. Lay down your sword. Lay down your sword. I've got this sword here that was my great-grandfather's. My grandfather gave it to me when I was 16, and I remember taking it out of the sheath and being amazed. My great-grandfather, Claude McKinney Bowers, same initials as me. They're right here, all this beautiful stuff on it. I went out in the backyard and was swinging it around. And I got home and I was laying in bed that night and it never occurred to me to ask my grandfather, what war did my great-grandfather fight in with this really amazing sword? And so the next time I saw him, I said, hey, hey, Paul, what, what war did your dad fight in? And he goes, well, what do you mean? I said, well, that sword, it's such a cool sword. What war did he use it in? And he just kind of laughed and he said, oh, son, he, he didn't use that in a, in a war. It was just for some fraternal group he was part of. I just thought you might think it was cool. (laughs) Oh, okay. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's still really cool. It was my great-grandfather's. But I I didn't know what it was for. And the reality is, if I had, I wouldn't have known how to use it. Now, I I wonder sometimes if we don't understand the weapons of the kingdom that we have at our disposal. We don't know what they're for, and, and we don't know how to use them. See, Peter thought the kingdom of God could be won by the shedding of blood. But you know what makes a farce of the powers that would be? You know what makes a farce of your political enemies, whomever they might be? You know what makes a farce of things like Planned Parenthood and apartheid and systemic corruption and injustice and genocidal agendas and the grabs for power that every regime on earth? is after, it's a people who would lay themselves down for one another, for their neighbors, and even for their enemies. 
See, evil doesn't know what to do with that. When Celestin Musakura, our friend from Rwanda, 23 years ago during the genocide they began commemorating this week, when he's in a torture tent and a guy is literally ripping his back to shreds as he beats him, Celestin looked back and said, you cannot win. And the man says, what do you mean I cannot win? And Celestin said, you cannot defeat me because I love you. And the man said, get out of here. See, he just made a farce of the evil of genocide. Peter thinks he's acting according to the purposes of God when he lops his kid's ear off. He, he actually thinks that what he's doing is going to usher in the kingdom of God. And he's wrong. He's just dead wrong. And I wonder if sometimes we're not just wielding metaphorical swords thinking we're all about the purposes of God. I'm going to tell them and let them know. I'm going to fight for Jesus. I'll show them. When actually we're just creating a mess that Jesus is going to have to clean up. See, this is how we know what love is, that we lay down our lives for others just like Jesus did. The message of the garden is to take up the cup, and the message of the garden is to lay down the sword, and Jesus is moving toward Golgotha with an intention that is mind-blowing. How, how does he do it? How does he do it? The answer, it's not rocket science, but it's also not easy. See, Jesus can take up the cup and he can lay down the sword or tell Peter to lay down the sword because he has been in communion with the Father. And that's the third lesson of the garden. If we would follow Jesus, we must take up the cup. If we would follow Jesus, we must lay down the sword. But we'll only do that if we'd be entrusting communion with the Father. See, he's gone to him three times and prayed, Father, nothing's impossible for you. Take this cup from me, but not as I will as you will. And so because of his communion with the Father, he can accept the will of the Father. Even before they got to the garden that night, he taught them and then he began to pray on the way. And he was praying for the glory of God and for the unity of his disciples, just in communion with the Father. And here's, here's what Jesus knows and here's what we would know if we would follow him and be in communion with the Father and take up the cup and lay down the sword. He has complete confidence that the Father is strong and the Father is loving. He has full assurance that the plans, purposes, intentions, and ways of God are good and are triumphant. So he has been and he will be the visible expression of the glory of God on earth. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only who is with the Father, he explains him. We're told by the writer of Hebrews, Jesus is the exact representation of his nature, the radiance of his glory. He's a visible expression of the glory of God, even if it cost him his life. And so now that he has risen from the dead, we're his people 
in constant communion with the Father. And we're called to have complete confidence that the Father is strong and the Father is loving and so is His Son. We're to walk together as a church in full assurance that the plans, purposes, intentions, and ways of God are good and triumphant. And just as Jesus is the visible expression of the glory of God, so the church is to be the willing reflection of the image of the glory of God in all the earth, even if it cost us our lives. See, sometimes I think it's hard for us metaphorically to lay our lives down because we live in a place where Christians very rarely have to physically lay their lives down. I think that probably for believers in Syria and Lebanon and Bangladesh and India and China and Afghanistan, the metaphor of laying your life down for the sake of others is not difficult because, because they've seen their friends and family lay their lives down for the sake of the gospel, literally. See, Tertullian, one of the church fathers, understood this paradox of the kingdom of God. He said, the more you mow us down, the more numerous we grow. The blood of Christians is seed. You take one of us down and ten more rise up in our place, even if it cost us our lives. So we are a people who can go and lay ourselves down at places like Hope Pregnancy Center, serving brave and bold young ladies who are making difficult choices. We can serve and love the young ladies who are coming to TBC as a part of Embrace Grace. We can serve our brothers and sisters who are walking through recovery and struggling with addiction. On Tuesday nights at Celebrate Recovery, we can go Thursday nights to the prisons of Central Texas with Discipleship Unlimited. We can go with our friends at Canyon Creek and Wayman Manor and other places where we can lay ourselves down in love. And when we do, we're taking up the cup and we're laying down the sword. And people are watching and seeing, oh, those are people who know God and who are following Jesus. He prayed for it that the world might know we're his disciples. Well, Jesus' first miracle his mom wanted him to do was to turn water into wine, and he looked at her and he said, my hour has not yet come. But he turned the water into wine, and then three years later, he would become the wine that would precede the wedding feast. His last recorded miracle is, healing this servant of the man who would call for his crucifixion. They had a different idea of what it meant to be the chief priest. And he says, my time has come. And I just wonder if in this moment, not, not this moment, April 9th, 2017, but in this moment of world and redemptive history, if the church, God's people, might... Uh, desire the kingdom coming so much that, that we'd say this is our time and we would lay our lives down. Say our, our hour has come. Our hour has come. Let's take up the battle and lay down the sword. See, so you, you, might, you might think, you know, I want to do that, but something keeps me from it. Something keeps me from it, and it might just be fear. 
It might be the fear of man or fear of consequence. It's greater than the trust of God. We all experience that sometimes in life. It might just be apathy, that you're so focused on yourself and on your little kingdom that you're not thinking about God's kingdom. It might be all kinds of things. When I think about my own life, it's not one sin that comes to mind. It's many. Weeks like this week can be a great time to reflect because there's nobody that comes to Jesus that doesn't get called to do a 180 somewhere in life. And this Thursday, as we really begin our Easter week services, we'll begin them Thursday night, Maundy Thursday, where Jesus washed his disciples' feet. And we'll have a great service where there are all kinds of different opportunities for you to pause and reflect and consider. And one of those is a place of confession. You may have picked up one of these cards as you came in. I know we run out, ran out. We'll have plenty more Thursday. And the card has the schedule on it for this weekend, but the bottom of it, the bottom of it is a card of confession where maybe you would consider this week, is there something keeping me from really taking up the cup and laying down the sword and being in communion with the Father in such a way that my life looks so different from the world around me, that our lives look so different from the world around us. And listen, there's, there's nothing magical about you writing down words on a card and hammering them to a cross. But, but that action could be a symbol of what God's doing, and it could be a, a reminder, a marker, a kind of Ebenezer where you remember that was the moment when I said, you know what, I'm giving this to Jesus and I'm following him. Maybe you'd prayerfully consider what that would look like for you. And, and maybe it's this Thursday, maybe it's right now that you'd say there are things I'm going to lay down and I'm going to take up the cup and follow Jesus. I'm going to take up the battle and lay down the sword. Well, Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus, who took the cup of wrath that belonged to us, who took the curse as he hung on that tree, who drank the cup of evil and through his death conquered all the evil in the world. God, I pray for men and women in this place that don't know him yet that they might embrace the forgiveness and life that is in him. God, I pray for us as believers. I pray for my own heart, God, that you'd help us to examine ourselves and to see those areas where we don't want to take up the cup and we just don't want to drink it. And, and there's a sword we're holding on to that we think might just usher in the kingdom, but it's really just causing a mess for you, God. Would you help us to see what our sword might be that we might lay it down? And God, we thank you for your son, Jesus, through whom we can come and have intimate and intense and intentional communion with you. God, help us to take advantage of that, that we might follow your son and lay our lives down for the sake of others. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. God, we pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. And you're dismissed.